Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, as the Israel-Hamas war enters its second month, anti-Semitism is on the rise stateside. Safety concerns spike as millions begin celebrating Hanukkah. There's a lot of fear and anxiety and nervousness in the Jewish community, and yet you see this determination not to let terrorists win. Plus, ready to run. After months of speculation, former state Senate President Steve Sweeney throws his hat in the ring for New Jersey governor. Also, delivering relief to a food desert. They're really struggling to have those basic needs met. Um, and again, transportation is a huge barrier, um, as well as access to a, a full-service grocery store here in the city that's affordable. Virtua Health's mobile grocery store hits the road to Atlantic City to serve the under-resourced community and funding the future. These are issues that are often forgotten in public health. They're forgotten in health care. A Rutgers University alum provides a multi-million dollar gift to help focus on LGBTQ public health research. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJ PBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us on this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. From Trenton to Hoboken and all the towns in between, Hanukkah celebrations are underway. Jews in New Jersey are attending local menorah lightings and digging into the traditional treats that make the Festival of Lights a little brighter. On this second night of the eight-day observance, places like Morristown are hosting Shabbat services led by a children's choir. Many say they're feeling a spiritual revival for what's considered a minor holiday among observant Jews, hoping to spread the light during one of the darkest times in recent Jewish history. Celebrating in the shadow of the Israel-Hamas war and rising anti-Semitism, with the nationwide mourning for the 1,200 Israelis killed in the October 7th Hamas attack, and renewed hope for the safe return of their loved ones, including Tenafly's 19-year-old Idan Alexander being held hostage in Gaza. As Ted Goldberg reports, it's all familiar territory for Jews, whose holidays are frequently a reminder to be resilient and defiant. A spike in anti-Semitic incidents isn't stopping synagogues from celebrating the second night of Hanukkah. We have a big dinner and we serve potato latkes and sufganiyot, jelly donuts, and we sing Hanukkah songs. Rabbi Joel Pekowski says members of his congregation in Teaneck have not been scared off by the recent rise in hate. Yesterday in Albany, New York, a man was arrested after allegedly firing a shotgun outside of a synagogue. There's no way you could see that as anything but an anti-Semitic incident. And I feel for those teachers, God willing, those students were unaware, but their parents finding out about this, knowing that the place that they bring their children to be educated in a safe and secure environment was threatened from the outside. We cannot let outside actors, especially people who wish to do us harm, uh, dictate to us, tell us, describe for us what our Judaism should look like. There's a lot of fear and anxiety 
and nervousness in the Jewish community. And yet you see this determination not to let terrorists win. You see this determination not to let hate succeed. Dove Ben Shimon leads the Jewish Federation of Greater Metro West, New Jersey's largest Jewish philanthropy. Jews in this country are, are a tiny percent of the population, but we represent a massive percentage of hate crimes, of bias crimes. The majority of those incidents reported um, have to do with harassment. Over 50% of approximately 135 total incidents that we've tracked since October 7th that have been reported. The FBI's special agent in charge in Newark, James Dennehy, says those numbers are probably too low and that anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks aren't always counted accurately. And that's for a variety of reasons. People don't know how to report it. They don't know, they don't think law enforcement's gonna do anything about it. They fear uh, retaliation. Rabbi Pekowski says Hanukkah comes at a great time for the Jewish community, even as the war between Israel and Hamas has seemingly no end in sight. Celebrate a holiday that is about religious freedom, that is about the, the minority of Jews who wish to remain uh, true to some sense of Jewish peoplehood and Jewish tradition, uh, fighting against a much more powerful foe. The ultimate lesson of Hanukkah is one of endurance, of resilience, and of hope. The knowledge that in the end we can light our lights and use that light to push back the darkness of terror. A darkness that Jews hope can be overcome by the Festival of Lights. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Ted Goldberg. The 2025 gubernatorial race is shaping up to look a lot like the election from eight years ago. Sources for former Senate President Steve Sweeney are now confirming he'll announce his campaign on Monday for the Democratic nomination for governor. NJ Globe first reported Sweeney's plans to enter the race. He was preparing to run back in 2017, but backed out after North Jersey Democrats said they wouldn't support his bid. Then, in a stunning 2021 political shakeup, Sweeney lost his Senate seat to Republican Ed Durr, which left some political observers to believe he may be sidelined from a statewide race for good. Sweeney's announcement means he'll join Jersey City Mayor Steve Fulop, who is so far the lone Democrat to toss his hat in the ring. Posting on X about Sweeney on Thursday, Fulop said it was getting lonely in the race. The Jersey City Mayor also prepared a gubernatorial run in 2017, but backed out unexpectedly. Meanwhile, longtime Democratic Assemblyman Herb Conaway will run for Congress. According to NJ Globe, Conaway will seek the nomination for Representative Andy Kim's House seat in the 3rd District. Kim, of course, is giving up his position to run for embattled senior U.S. Senator Bob Menendez's spot. A new report is sounding the alarm on the 59 crisis pregnancy centers operating across the state. The Planned Parenthood Action Fund of New Jersey calls them anti-abortion centers and fake health facilities that discourage pregnant people from getting abortion services. But it also alleges the unlicensed medical locations are giving patients inaccurate information about their health that could lead to larger public health problems. Joining me for more on the report is Jackie Cornell, executive director of Planned Parenthood, New Jersey. 
Jackie Cornell, thanks for joining me. You know, these anti-abortion centers, crisis pregnancy centers, they're not new. They've been around for some time. And in fact, uh, leaders from the state attorney general's office even issued a warning. So what was the, the purpose of issuing this report and doing a deep dive, I'll call it, on them? Yeah, thanks so much, Brianna, for, for having me on today and uh, for raising this up. And parenthood oftentimes gets sort of pigeonholed into just sort of talking about abortion access, which is obviously because of the fall of Roe, one of the big things that we that we do and that we that we tackle. But there's a lot that we care about: um, maternal and infant mortality, um, cancer rates, uh, and and STI rates. You know, and so when we were looking at the increasing rates of STIs, and we were kind of diving into what was going on, one of the things that came up was the fact that many of these anti-abortion centers or crisis pregnancy centers uh, that exist here in New Jersey, and as the report indicated, they outnumber Planned Parenthood health centers uh, three to one in the Garden State. They claim to do STI testing. When they're doing those testing, they're not regulated facilities. And to our knowledge, they're not employing licensed professionals, licensed medical professionals. And so at a time when STI numbers are increasing, it just raises a lot of concerns about public health. Yeah. Is the concern that it's misleading consumers um, not just in terms of reporting accurately public health data back to state and federal regulators, but also in terms of the services that they're providing? Because that's essentially what the attorney general laid out in that consumer warning. So the attorney general laid out the warning saying that they oftentimes use deceptive advertising. Um, one of the things that Planned Parenthood uh, health center staffers have talked about anecdotally for, for years, if not decades, is the mobile vans or units that these centers typically use and park outside of Planned Parenthood health centers. And so those vans um, oftentimes will have uh, folks, maybe volunteers, maybe employees, again, no one really knows who these folks are, um, parked outside of health centers. And we'll say to individuals who are walking out, oh, is, is there a line? Why don't you come here? And so the patient, um, you know, who might be in a hurry, maybe have kids at home, you know, all of the demands of the day, unknowingly goes into the van thinking that it's a healthcare provider. You know, it's disruptive and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's upsetting. Yeah, so is there a call to action through the report or is it purely to raise awareness? Our biggest concern right now is what is happening with those STI uh, tests? Um, what is the treatment option? No one knows. Um, and the unchecked, uh, you know, if it's not a medical professional, and again, if they're not licensed facilities, are they licensed professionals? No one knows. They're essentially unregulated. Um, and so the report really just tries to pose uh, and outline what we think we know um, and tries to ask regulators and stakeholders to start to examine and ask more probing questions that only the state and legislators can do. Jackie Cornell is with the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. Jackie, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you again.
In Atlantic City, where high-end hotels and casinos abound, there's still not a single supermarket for local residents. Instead, they're forced to drive out of the seaside resort town to a chain grocery store or take public transportation that comes at a hefty price. Now the state and a local hospital system, Virtua Health, hope to change that by bringing a year-round grocery store on wheels into the communities that need it most. Melissa Rose Cooper reports. My first time here, I bought honey, I bought um, tea bags, I bought bananas, I bought oranges, and I bought grapes. This is my second time here today. I bought milk and bread. Well, I bought bread earlier, but I needed more. Which wasn't a problem for Dolores butler Whaley, since this mobile grocery store is within walking distance from her Atlantic City home. She says normally she'd have to travel pretty far to get the same things. If you walk, it's like maybe with my leg, it's like an hour. You know, and I used to have someone with me. And if I catch the bus or catch a cab, that's $10 up and $10 back. Now, every Friday, Butler Whaley and her neighbors can come here and get their shopping done thanks to Virtual Health's Eat Well Food Access Program. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority teaming up with the healthcare system to bring its mobile grocery store to Atlantic City. This is exactly how it sounds. It's a small grocery store on wheels. If you get a chance to go inside, you see that you're greeted with fresh produce. You move on to some staple pantry items. You can get uh, your rice and your beans and pasta and things like that there. Then we have fridge and freezer, so you get your proteins, meat, seafood. Um, seafood's a really uh, big seller for us. And then a dairy case, and then you go right to the back and check out. Many of the products are the same things you'll find at traditional stores, but at prices that are 30 to 50% less than the supermarket, making it more affordable for families. It's one of the main reasons April Shetler, Assistant Vice President of Community Health Engagement for Virtua Health, says the mobile grocery store is so important. Atlantic City is one of those cities where um, from the surface it might look like casinos and wonderful restaurants and shows, um, but when you really start to drive around and look, there's so many uh, wonderful communities here, vibrant communities, um, but they're really struggling to have those basic needs met. Um, and again, transportation is a huge barrier um, as well as access to a, a full service grocery store here in the city that's affordable. Um, so, you know, when you, when you peel back some of the layers of the city, as wonderful as it is, we're really just trying to um, give our, the residents a hand up and just allow them to um, have it a little bit easier to access affordable food through the winter months. Atlantic City has been considered a food desert for years and remains without a supermarket. Plans were in the works to bring a shop right in the city with a groundbreaking ceremony taking place in 2021. But after the state's Casino Reinvestment Development Authority rejected several proposals to build a full-service supermarket in Atlantic City earlier this year, the supermarket chain pulled out. And it's devastating. Um, you know, we told the people that it was going to open and it didn't. You know, for what the reasons are, um, we are what we are. So we just got to find a solution, a permanent solution. This is a temporary fix and, you know, make it happen. But for now, residents like Butler Whaley say they're happy the mobile grocery store is around. Come on, it can't get, it can't get any better. You know what I'm saying? This is good. This is a good thing. I love it, and I just hope I see it like all over the city, not just here, you know, in different places in the city. The mobile grocery store will continue coming to Atlantic City for the next several months. Virtual Health is hoping to also make it available on Saturdays soon. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper.
In our Spotlight on Business report, the state is kicking offshore wind plans into high gear. Ever since Danish wind developer Orsted pulled the plug on its two projects off New Jersey's coastline, the Murphy administration almost immediately directed the state to put other offshore sites out to bid. And while it means essentially starting from scratch, clean energy advocates tell senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan they're undeterred. Offshore wind is not dead. It, it actually is at a, at a turning point, um, and the industry is bigger than just one project. Green energy advocates like Doug O'Malley concede getting the turbines going and the juice flowing won't happen as soon as the Murphy administration originally planned after the Danish company Orsted pulled the plug on its two wind farms off the South Jersey coast. So clearly it was a gut punch to have uh, Ocean Wind 1 and Ocean Wind 2 run by Orsted. Uh, pull out unexpectedly on on Halloween, but the you know the simple reality is that there are multiple projects that are moving ahead up and down the East Coast right now. A second Orsted project, South Fork, started generating power for New York just this week, and the Empire Wind project recently won federal approval. In New Jersey, Atlantic Shores awaits final permits to get started, and Governor Murphy just directed the Board of Public Utilities to speed up the bidding process for more offshore wind proposals. Every other state is kind of experiencing these same challenges, and I think New Jersey's done a great job pivoting, being really responsive. Offshore wind expert Chris Olath explained Jersey's baked in a solution to the problems that doomed other projects, including high interest rates, supply chain kinks, and spiraling costs. So essentially there is a mechanism in that bid that if there is huge inflation again that's running out of control, the figures that are bid into that solicitation would be indexed or tied to the inflation rate. There's four uh, proposals, a number of strong, really pr strong proposals that have come in. And more to come next spring, says Tim Sullivan. He heads New Jersey's Economic Development Authority and admits the Orsted cancellation hit hard at EEW, a Paulsboro facility that builds the enormous steel monopiles crucial to offshore wind construction, the only one in the U.S. It's called comfort to people who are dealing with challenges right now, but in terms of the long-term viability of this industry in New Jersey, it's really important. There's a long game. And so, you know, certainly a setback uh, the second half of this year, but uh, this is a long game. He said the new wind port in Salem County will ultimately also serve the entire region. All it needs is customers. After Orsted quit Jersey, Atlantic Shores firmly stated it remains committed to New Jersey and applauds Governor Murphy's decision to accelerate the next offshore wind solicitation. But obstacles remain, including local opposition. If you don't move, then you're going to get arrested. Some grassroots groups will continue to oppose offshore wind, alleging it could damage the Jersey Shore's economy or hurt marine life, a claim disputed by researchers. But advocates reply the state needs to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. And offshore wind is not going to be the silver bullet. It's not going to solve global warming. But literally every um, kind of tenth of a degree matters. And we need to be creating a power source that is the 21st century. Atlantic Shores could generate enough juice to power 700,000 homes by 2027. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Turning to Wall Street, a new jobs report out today shows unemployment unexpectedly declined in November, with the U.S. economy adding just shy of 200,000 jobs. Here's how the markets reacted. 
and join Raven Santana for NJ Business Beat this weekend. She'll highlight the state of Asian American and Asian Indian business communities, including the organizations supporting their growth and the challenges those business owners face in starting and running their companies. Watch it right here on NJPBS Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. dollar gift from a Rutgers University alumni will create a first-of-its-kind program at the school to focus on LGBTQ plus public health issues. Alumnus James Dougherty donated the money in the hopes of giving Rutgers a permanent champion for LGBTQ rights and named the endowed chair a prestigious honor after Perry Halkidis, the dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health, who's laid much of the groundwork both for the university and the state on public policy surrounding the LGBTQ community. I asked Perry Halkidis what his plans are for the chairship and how he envisions it improving lives. Perry, welcome uh, to the show. This is a really uh, big honor, the Perry Halkidis Endowed Chair in LGBTQ Plus Public Health. What are your plans for it? So thank you for that, for acknowledging that. The plans for it are to make sure that the School of Public Health at Rutgers always is addressing LGBTQ health issues. These are issues that are often forgotten in public health, they're forgotten in health care, and what this ensures is that I will be able to, in the short term, and the school will in the long term, always have somebody on board who is thinking about these issues from an educational perspective, from a research perspective, and from a community engagement perspective. You've already done a lot at the university in terms of public health and, and looking at a lot of these issues. So where do you go from here? You've got a $5 million pot of money between the donation and some extra money that the chancellor is kicking in. Um, how do you expand the type of not just resources, but also how you plan to influence, you know, public policy. Yeah, so I th what we're thinking about is creating a site that's even bigger than what's there right now. A site that provides education across the university to RBHS uh, students who are medical school students or public health students that does research and provide seed money to get even bigger grants from the National Institutes of Health, but also the policy piece. And the policy piece I think is critically important here because very often the research stays in the paper and doesn't get translated. We know in the state of New Jersey we're lucky because last year we were able to collect, start collecting SOGI data, sexual orientation and gender identity data on folks as they're going to their healthcare providers, right. but there's still work to be done in that area. Is there anything like this, not just in New Jersey, but I'm also thinking nationally on a scale like this? There are some endowed chairs, um, some in LGBT. There was one at Yale in the humanities, but I think we're like uh, on the edge here. We are like, you know, Rutgers is like pushing the boundaries and doing things that are really true to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when we think about DEI issues and justice issues, LGBTQ folks are part of that conversation. So this is keeping uh, the, um, the, the population at the forefront and thinking through how this population continues to be discriminated against in our society, obviously, right, as we see in the state of Florida and other places, but also in more subtle ways and making it a safe space 
for students and for scholars and for uh, researchers to do their work around these health issues. Yeah, I'm wondering if that speaks to the timing of this, what we've seen happen, not necessarily in New Jersey, but elsewhere uh, in terms of legislation, um, items that have acted perhaps against the LGBTQ community. Did those two things go hand in hand, the timing of launching this uh, chairship at Rutgers and the fact that all of that is happening globally and nationally? Well, certainly James Dougherty, who is the person who has endowed this chair, is a proud gay man like myself. And we've had many conversations about the realities of LGBTQ people in this country right now, especially trans folks, people in the states of Florida and in Texas. And so do I think that probably was an increased motivation to speed this up? Probably yes, because we have to be out and upfront and open and discussing these issues and confronting them in real time and modeling it for the rest of the country. Perry Halkidis with the Rutgers University School of Public Health, the dean there. Congratulations and thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure you tune in to Reporters Roundtable with David Cruz this weekend. He looks at whether this is Chris Christie's last stand with Monmouth University pollster Patrick Murray. Plus, he'll have all the week's political headlines with a panel of local journalists. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Then on Chatbox this weekend, David talks to Representative Bonnie Watson-Coleman about the latest in Congress, from the expulsion of Representative George Santos to the debate over Middle East policy. Check it out Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. all right here on NJPBS. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. We'll see you right back here on Monday. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Our future relies on more than clean energy. Our future relies on empowered communities, the health and safety of our families and neighbors, of our schools and streets. The PSEG Foundation is committed to sustainability, equity, and economic empowerment. Investing in parks, helping towns go green, supporting civic centers, scholarships, and workforce development that strengthen our community. Have some water. Look at these kids. How are you? What do you see? I see myself. I became an ESL teacher to give my students what I wanted when I came to this country. The opportunity to learn, to dream, to achieve, a chance to belong and to be an American. My name is Julia Toriani Crompton and I'm proud to be an NJEA member.